Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Karen Kingsbury leads off this week's edition of The Intersection. She has recently released another novel, which takes readers back in time to a life-transforming season in the life of one of the main characters in the Baxter family and explores matters of substance abuse and suicide, as well as redemption and forgiveness. Then it's Alan Jackson from World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, who discussed with me the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer and his work in that church, reminding us of the power God has made available to us. Material from that conversation is coming up. And on this edition of The Intersection, Warwick Fairfax is from a family that once had a media empire in Australia That is, until he tried to save it and lost billions of dollars. But in the aftermath, he found what was truly important, his purpose in Jesus Christ. You'll be learning from his story as you listen coming up. Finally, comments from Wallace Henley, formerly of Second Baptist Church of Houston. He was a White House staff member and journalist who now writes for the Christian Post. He tackles a rather ominous topic for our future, artificial intelligence and potential moral and ethical concerns. This is The Intersection, a production of The Beating House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Karen Kingsbury is a legendary novelist who attempts to present compelling stories that weave together humanity and faith. Many of her novels feature characters who are part of the Baxter family, with one of the most notable being Ashley. In her latest novel, Forgiving Paris, Karen explores a turbulent season of Ashley's life and illustrates the power of God's redemptive process. She talked with me about it recently. Here now is Karen Kingsbury. You actually revisit some material and enhance some of the material. Going back, what was it? Was it the very first Baxter book that there may have been some reference to Paris? Really, it was. Yeah, and I, I've told some of the readers who have stayed with the Baxters all these years. It's I say, you know, you have waited twenty years to find out what happened to Ashley Baxter when she went to Paris. And that's why it's got to be it's got to be a standalone. I don't expect anyone to have read any of that, but uh, it's a current day story. And Ashley is going back to Paris and she's having an art show. She's an artist. She's going with her husband and they're having their anniversary. But this is the place where she made her greatest mistake. She had an affair with a married man. And that's something that she was, you know, ashamed of and horrified of. And it kind of has colored who she is as the years played out, even though she knows She's taken it to God. She's forgiven, but she hasn't forgiven herself. And I think that's the thing that we get to wrestle with her as she goes back and, and, you know, has her flashbacks and has her memories and wondering how she could have ever been that person, but also having to come to a place of not just forgiveness, but redemption. Like what was the Mm. good that came out of Paris? And as we think about the the situation, we know, of course, one thing or one person that came out of the the Paris era was actually her son. I know in the Baxter series, you actually deal with with Ashley and and her marriage to Landon and how they they really become whole and some of the issues between father and his adopted son. And so there's there are a lot of different areas that you've explored. I do want to ask you this with respect, and this is a very sensitive area. There are people, and I know there are people listening today, I think that this is just part of our experience as believers in Christ, that there are things in our past that perhaps have not been submitted under 
the cross, the blood of Jesus, that we have not either asked for forgiveness or not really experienced the fulfillment or the fulfillment of forgiveness that God wants to give us, if I can put it like this. Tell me how telling this story really, as you see it, can help people to more fully experience what God has in store, as we might say, on the other side with respect to forgiveness. It's just so true, Bob. It really is that, you know, we all have a Paris. It might be something we said, something we did, you know, a, a something so horrific that, and you're right, many times people don't even take it to the Lord. Like they don't even say, hey, I have to own that I did this. They just want to like bury it and push it down. But the reality is there's no freedom until you take that thing and you first take it to Jesus. You, you have to, you know, repent of that thing and, and let him know how grievously sorry you are. But then there may even be restoration that needs to be made among people, like going to somebody and saying, you know, I know what I said 10 years ago. It was wrong. Um, I've gone to God with it, but I need to go to you and I need to apologize. So it's when you do that, this is just biblical. You're going to have freedom and freedom is so much better than carrying around a bag of rocks. And I also understand that you deal with issues such as drug addiction and even suicide in this novel. Tell me about what you wanted to communicate about those issues. Well, they're prevalent, first of all. Obviously, we have that as a, as a growing concern among just so many communities, families, you know, just as simple as, I mean, I have a friend who's aunt, but she's like not in the drug, quote unquote, age, you know, she was in her 40s. And she had a, a knee surgery and got on oxycodone and mm. couldn't get off of it and switched to heroin and was so ashamed she never told anyone and took her own life. Like, this is a prevalent thing in our society, unfortunately, and it's it's hidden because a lot of times it's families that are, you know, they're good families. Like, they're the husband and wife are together and they go to church on Sunday and they have this deep, dark secret. One of their kids is torn and lost with this world. Well, there's just, um, this is one of the little boats that Landon had told Ashley about is that there'll be as a girl that she'll get to meet and connect with that is alive today and changed today and sober today because of her interaction with Ashley. So while she thought everything was bad about Paris, this is one of those things that God shows her on the trip that, Hey, here's this girl wouldn't even be here today. She wouldn't even be alive. She wouldn't have her son if it wasn't for you. Karen Kingsbury here on the intersection. You can find her online by going to Karen Kingsbury. That's K I N G S B U R Y. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the senior pastor of World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Alan Jackson. In our recent conversation, he discussed what has been taking place in his church during the COVID pandemic, and he shared his insight about the identity and personhood of the Holy Spirit relative to his book, which is a collection of sermons called Unleashing the Power of the Holy Spirit. From that conversation, here now is Alan Jackson. COVID signaled a change of season, and I don't believe we're going back. You know, they told us we'd go home for two weeks, we could return to normal. And obviously they were wrong in that. I think God moved on our behalf. They told us two million of us could die, and that fortunately that did not happen. So I'm grateful for that expression of God's grace. But I believe it was the signal of a new season. And it's not that we're waiting to return to someplace. I believe God began to put our feet on a path for a new journey. You know, I think the parallel with the Exodus generation is appropriate. From the day Moses walked in and said, pack your bags, we're leaving, until they got to the, the Jordan River and said that we can't go into the promised land, they never had the same day twice. 
it was a series of new experiences and it was very unsettling. It was exhausting. It brought about grumbling. It brought about uh, reflections. We would rather go back to where we were before. And I hear a lot of that in my own heart and in the people that I'm making the journey with. We're tired. Um, Every day seems unfamiliar to us. And yet there's no question God is leading us. We've baptized more people in the last 12 months than any year in the history of our congregation. We have more people coming to worship with us on the weekends from across the nation, not just across our region, than we've ever had in the history of the church. God is stirring the hearts of people. And yet there's another group of people that are desperately trying to live as if nothing's happening. They're vacationing with a hyper intensity. They've taken more vacations than they've ever taken before because they want to demonstrate that COVID has not interrupted their lives. And I think it's an important time for everybody that listens to to understand the focus of who you are and what you're becoming. Our goal isn't to maintain the normal that we had pre-COVID. Our goal is to understand how to cooperate with the Lord in the midst of this season. And it's not an easy thing. We have to encourage one another and help one another and walk with one another. We desperately need the strength that comes from being in community. From your standpoint, what are some of the things, as we might say, that we as believers need to know about the Holy Spirit? That's a really good question. You know, and I think it begins with some simple things. It's as simple as beginning to think of the Holy Spirit as a person. Uh, we don't have. I think we have a pretty clear imagination of God the Father and God the Son. But as you said earlier, when it comes to God the Holy Spirit, we get a little, I think we lose our focus a bit. And it, it's clear from the language of the New Testament. Greek is a very specific language. And I'll, I'll, we don't, none of us need a Greek lesson, but it's very clear in, in, the, in the Greek New Testament that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's discussed and treated linguistically the same way that Jesus was, or God the Father was. Each of the four Gospels, when we're introduced to Jesus, introduces him to us as the one who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus met with the disciples on the evening of his resurrection, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The last instruction he gave to them before his ascension in Acts chapter 1 was to wait in Jerusalem until they were baptized in the Spirit. In, the, in, in John's Gospel, in that lengthy section, when he's preparing them for his crucifixion and ultimately his ascension, he says to them, it's better for you if I go away, because if I go, the Father will send you another helper. Well, I, I have to believe Jesus. Whether I want to or not, he said it's better for us that he be absent from us and that his Spirit be present with us. So, I mean, the, the, the counsel of Scripture is just overwhelming. We've just managed, and every Christian tradition, every denomination has a wonderful language around the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. What we lack is the intent to actually cooperate with him. You know, the liturgies of all the denominations are beautifully put together. They're theologically intact. And we may parrot the words, but in our heart, we don't really have an imagination or an expectation that the Spirit of God will help us. And yet Jesus was so dependent upon that. His public ministry didn't begin until his baptism and the descent of the Spirit. Says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. And then in Luke 4, he returns to Galilee to begin his public ministry in the power of the Spirit. 
Well, if Jesus himself needed the help of the Holy Spirit, I've got a pretty good idea that (laughs) Alan and Bob would benefit from his presence as well. Alan Jackson here on The Intersection. You can find him online at Alan, A-L-L-E-N, Jackson.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. Also, there are links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as the Apple Podcast feed. Two blogs are accessible from the Meeting House homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from the Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and more. Continuing now with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the author of the book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance, Warwick Fairfax. In our conversation, he discussed how God helped him find his purpose in the aftermath of deep financial loss. Here now from that conversation is Warwick Fairfax. It starts with my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, who is the strongest business person for Christ as I've ever come across. Mm. He was an elder in church, great dad, great husband, uh, employees loved him. He had a small paper in England and was sued by an unscrupulous lawyer for something he wrote. Judge found that John Fairfax was vindicated. He was accurate, but he was bankrupted in the process. That was a crucible of its own, so he comes out to Australia, founds this massive media company that ends up having TV, newspapers, radio, magazines, the Australian equivalent of the Wall Street Journal, New York Mm. Times, Washington Post, the major opinion leaders. So by the time I came on the scenes, uh, my dad died early 87. I was fresh back from Oxford, Wall Street, Harvard Business School. And uh, the sense was, from my parents that the company wasn't being run along the vision of the founder, nor was it being well managed. And so in my youthful naivety and <laughs> idealism, I launched this $2.25 billion takeover, you know, to bring it back to the ideals of the founder and ensure it's well run. So uh, that was that was the goal, but it ran into a lot of trouble from right from the get-go. But that, that was the vision, and that was the reason. So tell me what happened next in this overall journey. For you, yeah, I mean, at least from a business perspective, I brought in new management. Actually, a chief executive who was a believer, funnily enough, and he increased operating profits eighty percent, which showed that yeah, maybe it wasn't being as well run as it could. But the debt was so much that it didn't really matter what he did at the mm. operating level. So by the end of nineteen ninety, Australia got in a big recession. Newspapers were cyclical, and so the company went under. So here I was trying to restore the company, the ideas of the founder, see it be well run, and uh, made it safe from takeover. And my actions directly brought about, you know, a 150-year-old company founded by a believer. It brought about its demise. So that was, you know, I mean, financially, wasn't that wasn't so much the biggest issue. It was emotionally, spiritually, there's a whole lot of other issues that were extremely difficult to cope with. But yeah, that's that's kind of what happened. Well, tell me about the impact on your Christian 
faith that these circumstances brought about? And, and that was really the hardest part because you know money has never been that much of a motivator for me, but I felt like in my you know youthful naivety that the company being founded by a strong believer and it must be God's will to uh, have me as you know I became a believer, uh, accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior in an evangelical Anglican church at Oxford, uh, where I did my undergrad. So I felt like clearly it must be God's plan. So when the company went under, I felt like God had a plan to resurrect the company in the image of the founder, and I blew God's plan. Mm. And obviously, one could analyze it theologically and saying if God had wanted to happen, given his sovereign will, it would have happened. But at 30 years old, when the company went under, I was just feeling like God had a plan, and I blew God's plan. And somebody is committed follower of Jesus back then and ever since, it was just crushing. I let God down, and for a believer, that's pretty much as bad as it gets. It was just absolutely crushing. and took me years to uh, try and find my way back from that, that you know, bottomless hole, if you will. And how did you do that? How did you find that way back? Well, you know, when you go through a crucible, especially for a believer, you either turn to God or turn away. It's a binary choice. Hmm. <laughs> and we have our own podcast, Beyond the Crucible, Every people with all manner of crucibles, whether it's, uh, you know, physical tragedy, you know, paraplegics or, uh, you know, abuse or business failure. And the story is all, always the same as you either, at least for a believer, turn to God or turn away. And so for me, I would just pour myself into the scriptures and, prayer. And there was one passage in particular for me, it was uh, Philippians 3, uh, 7 through 14, but I'll just read a couple of verses. Um, So beginning at verse 7 of Philippians 3, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Later on, around about verse 13, 14, it talks about forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize, which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I would go over that verse Hmm. dozens of times a day. Warwick Fairfax here on The Intersection. You can find him online through the website crucibleleadership.com. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Wallace Henley, a Christian Post-exclusive columnist who has served as a White House aide, a journalist, and in pastoral ministry, including most recently a senior associate pastor at Houston's Second Baptist Church. In our conversation, he discussed material relative to his book, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods? The Looming Spiritual Crisis of Artificial Intelligence. Here now from that conversation is Wallace Henley. In a time, in a season, when culture and society are losing the sense of God's transcendence, which means his overness, his, his majestic overness, his accountability to him. In a time when we're losing that sense in the culture, we're developing these machines. And we were wired for transcendence. Every human being is wired for transcendence. And the whole history of idolatry is that when we forget the transcendence of God, we start making other things transcendence, the work of our own hands. And what what arrested me was reading 
about the establishment of an AI church in California, of course, mm. by a former <laughs> Google engineer. And now this great God with a small g, AI, has become an object of worship. Another Google engineer said that if something of, it, of its magnitude, a billion times the computing power of the human brain, uh, a billion times more than what do we call it but God. And so I look at those things and I begin to understand that we're headed for a true crisis where we've lost the sense of transcendence, but we make the object, the imminent object, the, um, the transcendent thing that we bow down to. Very concerning. Well, in the book, as I understand it, you talk about how Stephen Hawking actually warned of an age when artificial intelligence could develop a will of its own. He said, we stand on a threshold of a brave new world, one needing effective management in all areas of its development. So as you look at that and speaking rather, as we might say, in a linear sense here, where are we along that timeline? This is very frightening when you think that human beings could actually invent and manufacture and develop computers that might have actually a mind of their own. Where where are we and what are the signs that that we are heading in that direction very swiftly? Well, one of the biggest signs is that there's there's a massive effort to try to build a sentient machine, um, a machine that has some capacity for um, uh, feeling, not certainly on a on a on a level that we think about feeling, but a sense of alertness inside of itself to say this is wrong and this is right. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the questions that I ask in my book is. Who, who is wiring these ethics and these value systems into these machines? Because at some point, and I think, frankly, the whole discussion about sentient abilities in the machines says we're way down the, 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 the map on this. And one of the great concerns, therefore, is at what point will machines make some decisions about the existence of human beings? After all, we and our sin nature are pretty messy individuals. And collectively, we are tragic for the planet Earth, a machine might say, and start uh, moving against us. Now, that's far-fetched, and I'm sure it's the stuff of science fiction. But I think we have to ask the question to every person who builds one of these machines, who defines your highest values? If there's no Hmm. transcendent God in your perspective, then, then where do your values come from that you're putting into this machine? Wallace Henley here on The Intersection. The website address for The Christian Post is christianpost.com. Well, we are nearing the conclusion of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. There are links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as the Apple Podcast feed. Two blogs are accessible from the Meeting House homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content, including recently added content from the Fall 2021 Christian Product Expo near St. Louis.
Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.